it's one thing to see pictures of Iguazu Falls and maybe to hear stories about them or hear facts about them, like they're the largest system of waterfalls in the world. But it's a completely different thing to actually be there. To hear the sound of the falls from a half mile away, to look over the walkway that ascends above a drop-off that goes down about 200 feet, or to walk down to the base of the falls and to be drenched by the mist that, that constantly rains from the flow of water. Or to stand at its base and, and, and to hear the water crush against the rocks from 120 feet high. A picture may be worth a thousand words, but being there, experiencing something in person is worth a billion words. A picture of a story just doesn't do it justice. Paul, can you turn this down a little bit, hear a little bit of ringing? Thanks. The Gospel of John is the record of something much greater than the magnificent waterfalls of South America. It's the record of the glory of Christ. And John doesn't want to just show us a picture or to tell us a story. He wants us to come and see Christ for ourselves. John has seen the glory of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen, we have beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. So John has seen the glory of Christ, and and. John records how the disciples of Christ start to discover him. And, and instead of telling, telling uh, about what the friends see, instead of telling about Jesus, who he is, the friends, when they tell each other, they simply say, come and see, like they do in chapter 1, verse 46. And when the Samaritan woman sees the glory of God in the face of Christ, she goes to tell the town and she says, come and see. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Messiah? And I would suggest to you that John is trying to get us to do the same thing, to come and see Jesus, the promised Messiah. So this morning I'd like to begin a 12-month, 43-sermon series through the Gospel of John. And my prayer is that you'll discover for the first time or rediscover what John knows. And that is the glory of Jesus Christ the only begotten of the Father who is full of grace and truth. So come and see. Would you open your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1? John chapter 1, and we'll read a selection here from the first chapter to get an idea of how John writes and what he's trying to to explain in his writing. John chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. So follow along as... As I read, this is the Word of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before Me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. And then skip down to verse 29. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him uh, speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom, Messiah, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The goal of our time today is to give an overview of the gospel. So in order to do that, let's look at five things about this gospel. First, maybe... Can I get some help there? Thank you. Um, First, this is the Gospel of John. The Gospel from John. So we want to look at some introductory ideas, uh, the author and date. John was the one who we read about in verse 14, who witnessed firsthand the glory of Jesus Christ. We have beheld His glory. He was, according to chapter 21, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of the three disciples in Jesus' inner circle, who he spent more time with. They saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. John was the brother of James. Their parents' names were Zebedee and Salome. And they, the two brothers, James and John, had a fiery personality. Jesus referred to them as the sons of thunder. John comes from a wealthy family who had status among the high priests. He was able to let Peter come into the inner um, courtyard there when Jesus was being tried. His mother very likely was a sister of Jesus' mother, Mary, which means that John and Jesus very likely were first cousins. 
John also wrote the first, second, third John and Revelation. And he died in AD 98. And much of his life was given to, um, to presenting who Jesus was and testifying what, what he's going to say at the end of John's Gospel here. I testify of the truth of Jesus Christ. So, so many of the other disciples, actually all the other disciples, died before the Apostle John. And John's the last one to die. He lives this long life, seems to die just of old age, and um, and he he uses his life to testify about the death of Jesus. He was the pastor of Jeru- of the Jerusalem church, very likely longtime member there. Later moved on to Ephesus, and uh, likely wrote this gospel from Ephesus long after the other three gospels had been written. So why add a fourth gospel? So let's think about the purpose. What's the purpose of of writing a gospel? We already have three other gospels. Uh, they all talk about Jesus, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. Why do we need a fourth gospel? John wants us to experience what he has experienced. He wants us to come to the base of the waterfall with him, so to speak. He wants us to come and see, or to use David's words in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and experience Him for yourself. Turn to John chapter 20. Here we see a clear purpose of why John is writing this Gospel. In this chapter, John is wrapping up his Gospel, and in doing so, he summarizes his method of writing, and he gives a purpose. So he's already talked about Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection at the beginning of chapter 20. And now he's going to say, here's why I wrote all these things. Notice verse 30. John 20, 30. Therefore, many other signs or miracles Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have a life in his name. So John's saying, listen, here's my method in writing, verse 30. It is to explain to you all the signs that point to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what I want you to be confident in. After you have read and, and thought through and experienced this Jesus for yourself, I want you to understand that he is the Messiah, the Christ, and he is the Son of God. And that in believing, you might have life in His name. So there's, there's really four parts to what John is seeking to do. He wants to show you the signs of Jesus. He wants you to believe. He wants you to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. And then finally, He wants, to, wants you to see that there is life that results from your belief. So let's look at those four things uh, as, we, as we survey this Gospel. The glory of Jesus Christ is what John is all about. And he explains for us the glory of Jesus Christ and invites us to see this glory for ourselves in this Gospel. And he breaks up the Gospel into two main sections. First, the Gospel about Jesus who came from heaven in chapters 1-12. through The Gospel about Jesus who came from heaven. And then second, the Gospel about Jesus who's preparing for us to go back to heaven with Him. He's preparing the way to heaven. He's blazing the trail for us so that we can go to heaven. And so that's what the first 
that's what the last uh, several chapters are about. The first 12 chapters are about Jesus' signs. The proof that He is the Messiah. He is the One who came from heaven. And there's two main ways that John describes Jesus in his Gospel. First, Jesus is the I Am. The I Am. The words I Am by themselves come from the Hebrew word Yahweh, also known as Jehovah. It's the covenant name for God Himself. It it simply means that God is. If you want to describe God in one way, He simply is. There's nothing that can fully describe who God is. He simply is. And, And Jesus makes this claim for Himself. And so through this Gospel, John wants us to see that Jesus is Yahweh. He is God. He is the covenant God of the Old Testament. And he uses seven I Am statements to to show this. And these are directly from the mouth of Jesus. In chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, I am the gate for the sheep and I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, after Lazarus died, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then his uh, statement in chapter 15, I am the true vine. So he uses these I am statements to describe some of who he is. He uses these pictures to help describe who he is. And we'll get to those as we study through the gospel together. But let me show you two, uh, the, the two most powerful I am statements. Turn first to chapter 8. Chapter 8. The two most powerful I am statements come in chapters 8 and 18. And we'll look at both of these. First, chapter 8, verse 48. Jesus is claiming that He is from God the Father. Remember, the first 12 chapters is Jesus saying, I am from heaven. I am sent from heaven. I have become man in order to pay for the sins of the world. But the Jews will not stand for it. They see Jesus as blaspheming. How could you say that you are the Son of God? So let's pick up the story in verse 48, John 8. The the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death? Surely, you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do not know him. Uh, but I do know him and keep his word. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The Jews recognized what Jesus was saying there. He was claim, claiming to be the I Am. Remember when, when Moses was in the wilderness and he sees the burning bush 
and he finds out that that's God speaking to him. And God says, you need to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Moses says, but who am I going to tell, tell Pharaoh that sent me? What am I going to say? And God says, tell him I am sent you. See, God claims to be the I am. And now Jesus is saying, before Abraham was born, I am. I am God. The second most powerful statement comes in chapter 18. Turn with me there. Chapter 18. I think this is the climactic I am statement in John's Gospel. This is um, right before Jesus goes to the cross. Chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which He entered with His, his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying Him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with His disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. See why I call this the most climactic, the most powerful I am statement there? When they come to arrest him, he has the power to destroy them with just a word from his mouth. They say, He says, Who do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says, I am Yahweh. I am God. And they all fall back. There seems to be another implied I am that's not stated in. Uh, This same chapter in verse 33 when Pilate asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And we would expect Jesus to respond by saying, I am, but he doesn't. He responds with the question instead. In all these claims, John is helping us to see that Jesus is from the Father. That he is equal with the Father. In fact, in chapter 10 he says, I and my Father are one. In chapter 11, the or, or, or it's not chapter 11, I'm not sure where it is, but the, the, the Pharisees are questioning him because Jesus is making himself equal with God. Jesus is acknowledging that he is from heaven because he is God. Jesus is the I Am. The second thing that, that um, John wants us to see is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. In these first 12 chapters, John helps us to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Maybe you noticed all the titles in chapter 1 as we were reading through that section. Turn back there, chapter 1. All the titles that, that John gives to Jesus. He wants us to see that this is a huge claim that he's making about this Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 29, he's called the Lamb of God. And again in verse 36. In verse 34, he's called the Son of God. Again in verse 49. In, in verse 49, he's called Rabbi. Verse 51, the Son of Man. In verse 41, the Messiah or the Christ. Verse 49, the King of Israel. Verses 45 and 46, Jesus of Nazareth. And so John effectively starts his gospel in chapter 1 with this huge claim. Jesus is both human and divine. That He is the Messianic King that's promised from the Old Testament, the Son of God who will take away the sin of the world. This is a huge claim that John's making. 
And if you're going to say something like that, John, if you're going to try to get us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, human, who will die for our sins, then we need to see something. We need to see some proof of that claim. And so over the next 11 chapters, John gives signs. Remember what he said in chapter 20, verse 30? I I tried to give you all the signs that would be helpful for you to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so that's what he does in chapters 2 through 12. The first sign is in chapter 2, verse 1. In fact, that's exactly what John says uh, about this. Um, In verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, this this beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. So Jesus there turned water into wine. The second sign is in chapter 4 where He heals an official son. The third sign is the healing of the disabled man at the pool in chapter 5. He feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6. He walks on water at the end of chapter 6. He heals the man born blind in chapter 9. And that leads to the most climactic of the signs that Jesus does in the opening part of John's Gospel. And it is the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. It's kind of like a crescendo. That, that John starts out with this huge, loud claim, like at the beginning of a musical piece. And then he builds up with these signs, leading to this great sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, saying, see, this is the promised Messiah. Who else raises the dead? This resurrection of Lazarus was a precursor or a pointer to the greatest sign of all, which is the sign of Jesus rising from the dead Himself in chapter 20. And so these miracles all point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. What John records about Jesus in chapter 1 is true. It reminds me of the Gospel of Luke when John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his followers to Jesus to see if is, is this really the Son of God? And Jesus responds, sends his messengers back to John the Baptist and he says, John, the blind see, the lame walk, the sick are healed, and the dead are raised. So you connect the dots. Who else can do that? John. It is Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Son of Man, the One who came from heaven, the King and Teacher of Israel, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. That's why His name is Jesus. His name means He saves because he will save his people from their sins. And so John opens up his gospel in these first 12 chapters by saying, come and see. Come and see. Next thing we see is that the gospel is about Jesus who is preparing the way for his people to go to God. That's what the rest of the gospel is about. The gospel is about Jesus who is preparing the way for his people to go to God. So would you turn to chapter 14? Jesus is paving the way so that we can come to God. We are separated from God because of our sin, aren't we? God will not accept us into His presence because of our sin. In fact, because of our sin, we are condemned to an eternal death in hell. We are born spiritually dead. We are physically born spiritually dead. We have no right, no ability to stand before God. There's no amount of works that we can do in order to be accepted by God. So in order for us to stand before God, somehow Jesus has to make the way clear for us. And that's what the rest of the Gospel is about. If Jesus is the promised Messiah, then, then He will free the captives. 
He will bring His people to God. But Jesus knows, and we now know, that that's not going to happen through military victory. That's not going to happen by overpowering His enemies. But rather, making the way for us to come to God is going to happen by Jesus laying down His life for His enemies. The pathway to God is through the cross. The pathway for us to go to God is through the suffering servant, Jesus. So in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus knows what's about to happen. And so he prepares his disciples for the time after he goes on to heaven. He prepares them by by giving this example of foot washing, of serving them in chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, he prepares them by paving the way to God and telling them that he's actually making the way possible for them to go to God. Look at verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father through me. Most often we look at this text and talk about it in in reference to the mansions that are being built in heaven for us. But I would argue that this passage is not primarily about mansions or specific houses or dwelling places for us but the dwelling place. That is that Jesus is making the way for us to dwell in His presence. That's the dwelling place that we're looking forward to. The best part about heaven is not going to be some mansion that is made for us. The best part about heaven is that God is there. That we are in the presence of God. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm preparing the way for you to go there. Do you know how I'm preparing the way? I'm going to the cross. I'm going to lay down my life for you that you can go to this place in the presence of God that's been prepared for you. He continues to prepare them in chapter 14 by teaching them about the Holy Spirit. He does the same in chapter 16. He prepares the disciples again in chapter 15 by talking to them about persecution, to expect that people will oppose them. And then in chapter 17, He prepares them by praying for them. Then in chapters 18 and 19, Jesus makes the way possible by actually going to the cross and dying. In chapter 20, Jesus rises from the dead and He reappears to His disciples and others. In His final time with them on this earth following His resurrection, He uses it to assure them of His love and to prepare them for their future ministry. John finishes up his Gospel in chapter 21 and, and there Jesus is preparing John and Peter for their future ministry. So this gospel is about Jesus who has come from heaven and he is preparing the way for his people to go to God. There are two other elements that we saw at the end of John. John 20, verse 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing you might, might have life through his name. So we want to look at those last two. Gospel about Jesus who demands belief. This theme of belief is very prominent in the Gospel of John. The word or the, the root word 
that, that is translated believe, believe or belief or believed or believing is used nearly a hundred times in the Gospel. Sometimes it's referring to a superficial belief that the people believed in Him, but Jesus did not entrust Himself to them. That is, that they had this superficial belief of Him, but it didn't. It wasn't a persevering belief, and so it didn't last. But there is other times, and most often it's used to refer to genuine belief. And sometimes the, the disciples don't understand all what that means, but they're learning how to believe in Jesus. And so one of the things that we can take away from this Gospel is that we must believe. That's what John's trying to get us to see. Come and see that Jesus is the Son of God. And in, that, in seeing that, that you will believe. And in believing, you will have life in His name. Remember, John's point is not simply to introduce us to Jesus or you know someone that lived a long time ago. But he wants us to actually see that Jesus is who He says He is and believe. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. In chapters 1-4, through four, Jesus is presented as one who is worthy of the people's belief and many follow Him and believe. Then in chapters 5-10, through 10, these claims are continually made and we see what happens with unbelief. Unbelief is usually connected with opposition. The people turn away from Him. And the climactic rejection of Jesus seen in the climactic sign. Do you remember the climactic sign? The most powerful sign in the first 12 chapters was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And even at that time, amazingly, there were Jews who witnessed, who actually saw with their eyes a dead man come to life. And instead of believing in the Messiah, some did, but instead of believing, others went back to the religious leaders And turn back there. Turn to chapter 11, verse 45. Notice their response to this amazing miracle that they witnessed with their own eyes. Chapter 11, verse 45. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He had done believed in Him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Verse 47. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the council and were saying, What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Unbelief is blinding, isn't it? It leads to opposition. They see this powerful miracle, and they still do not believe. They want to kill Jesus in order to save their position, their power protect their people, so to speak. And in contrast, um, turn back to chapter 6. In contrast to unbelief, which leads to opposition, belief actually is is evidenced or it, it displays itself in fellowship and obedience. And one of the, one of the alarming uh, realities 
one of the profound statements that John makes in this Gospel through the lips of Jesus is what our primary work is as people of God. What is the primary work that God has called us to do? See if you can find it here as we read this text. Chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you just want to fill your stomach. That's all you're concerned about. You, know, you don't care about the miracles. You don't care about what the miracles point to. Verse 27, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do, so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. How much of our life is filled with so many complex thoughts of what we're supposed to do with our life. Jesus simplifies it into this one statement. The greatest work, the the most fundamental thing that you can do as a person is believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe in His works. Believe that He is true. That His promises are real. Belief is connected to fellowship and obedience. And this belief is actually a gift from Christ. We don't have time to look at chapter 6, verses 41 to 45, but it's actually something that God grants through Jesus Christ. Anyone who believes does not do so on his own will or his own power ultimately, but ultimately because God has gifted that to them. Finally, the gospel about Jesus who is the giver of life. These are written. I I, I wrote down all these signs for you. And these are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you would have life in His name. Finally, we see that Believing in this gospel will actually grant us something. It grants us life. And this should be no surprise to us if we understand who Jesus is. Jesus is life. It's one of the ways that we can describe Him. In the very beginning of the gospel, Jesus is described as the Creator. Apart from Him was not anything made that one was made. Everything that was made was made by Jesus. He's God. He is the Creator. In verse 4 of chapter 1, In Him was life, and the life was the light. Of men, in John six he calls himself the bread of life, and in in John eleven twenty five he tells Martha he is the resurrection and the life. In chapter fourteen verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So three of those seven statements where he describes himself as the I am, three of them describe him himself as the life. I am the bread of life, and the resurrection of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if Jesus is life, then coming to him, believing in him we should recognize that we will receive life. And that's exactly what He promises. In chapter 3, He talks to Nicodemus. And there He says that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. And turn back to chapter 3. Because we see that this life is not just something that we get after we die, but it's actually something that we enjoy now. Chapter 3, verse 36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In in 
here and in John 10, verse 10, he says, this is life. Uh, he says, let me just look it up because I don't want to misquote him. I came that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. So this life is life that is eternal life. We do, uh, We are guaranteed that we will live forever in the presence of God apart from sin, apart from sorrow and pain and sickness and dying. That is true. But also this life is for now. It's the abundant life now that, that we can enjoy um, this, this uh, life with God even now. Rather than the wrath of God abiding on us, John 3.36, the wrath of God is lifted from us because it's put on Christ at the cross. In chapter 4, he tells the Samaritan woman that he will give whoever believes in him the water of life. In chapter 5, Jesus has life because he's from the Father and he has the power to grant life to those who believe. And that the life only comes to those who come to Jesus. In chapter 17, his prayer to his Father, Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know You and that they may know Me, whom You have sent. So John wants us to experience this life. He wants to enjoy the life that comes from Jesus. You would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that in believing, you would have life in His name. Jesus did many signs, but the ones that John chose to explain to us and to help us to come and see are written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in this belief we would have life. This Gospel is not an ancient myth or a legend passed down for generations. It's not true. This Gospel is not a story that is valueless to us. This is the true Gospel about Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. And we need to come and see this Jesus for ourselves. So please don't be an uninterested spectator. Don't simply hear about this Jesus who is sent from God. I invite you, as we go through this study, to taste and see the Savior for himself, for yourself. Discover His glory for the first time or rediscover Him with me again as we dive into the pages of John's Gospel. Come and see. Would you bow your heads together with me as we pray? Father, we're thankful that your work through Jesus is enough. There's nothing that we can do to merit your grace. That's why it's called grace. It's not merited. The only thing that you'll accept is belief in your Son. And so, Lord, we know that our fundamental work that we are called to do is to believe in Jesus, the Son of God. Thankful that He has clearly been displayed to us, revealed to us. Not something we just have to read about. We can experience Jesus for ourselves as we go to the the base of the waterfall and, and see what majestic glory there is in this Savior who came. He became a human in order that He could die. And He died in order that we could have life. Lord, we know that this life is promised for us both now and forevermore. Nothing that we have to fear because You are on our side. And if You are for us, then who can be against us? 
thankful for Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to um, grow more deeply in our understanding of him and that there would be a richness to our relationship with him as we study more about him in the pages of John's gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing number 128?